You are listening to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kelly Casperson. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am so excited. This is a BFD that I have Dr. Lori Brado on today. We're, we're basically neighbors because she's in Canada and I'm on the like northern tip of the United States. She's a psychologist and director of the UBC, which is the University of British Columbia in Vancouver Sexual Health Laboratory. And she's a professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at UBC and the executive director of the Women's Health Research Institute. Dr. Brado, thank you so much for coming on. It's such a pleasure to be here. I always tell my story of like how I got here. And I say, I like, I read the books and I went to the conferences and your book is one of the books that I read back in the, you know, three years ago and I knew nothing about sex medicine. I'm holding this up right now. Better Sex Through Mindfulness, How Women Can Cultivate Desire. And it's so good. And like, I, you know, podcast people can't see this, but I have like all these little marks in here from years ago (laughs) when I was like, yes, yes, yes. This is, this is what it's about because sex is not just like a deficiency in a gene or just a deficiency in a hormone or like that reductionist theory that doctors really love because it's in textbooks and we can put it on a multiple choice test. So can you, I'm so excited you're here. Thank you. Oh, thank you. That's, that's a great intro. I, I love it. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Like how did you become interested in researching sexuality and sexual health? Mm-hmm. Definitely. So I most definitely did not sign up to be a sex researcher on career day. Um, I kind of fell into the field by accident. I was an undergraduate studying biological psychology and knew that I loved research. I loved asking questions and finding novel ways of answering those questions. And so I was looking for a volunteer placement. And I landed in a behavioral neuroscience lab where the researcher was looking at the impact of antidepressants and stressful environments on rodent sexual behavior. So basically what I did was I would stress these little rats out by crowding them in a small box and flashing strobe light on them. And then I would measure the impact on their sexual activity. So in male rats, it was looking at the number of mounts and their latency, their ejaculation latency, essentially how long it took them to start mounting again after they ejaculated. And in the female rats, we would measure darts and hops, which is kind of flirting behavior in, in rats. And then we would also measure receptivity. And uh, did that for a number of years and fell in love with the science of how you can impact an environment and how that would translate into sexual activity. And then Viagra was approved. And in Canada, it was approved in 1999. That's where I did my training. It was also the year that I was wrapping up my master's. And I was compelled by the, the findings that this blockbuster medication was available. It was discreet. It was relatively inexpensive. It could restore sexual function. And in that same year, there was a large publication that came out in JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association, that found that over 40% of women had sexual difficulties. And that rate was a fair bit higher than the rates in men. So just kind of putting these two findings together, rates of sexual difficulties in human females was really high. There's this incredible medication for men, nothing comparable for women. Finishing up my master's, I was sort of done with the rat lab. And it was just an ideal opportunity for me to make the switch to humans. So that's kind of the backstory. And of course, since then, 
I've been primarily interested in the factors that trigger sexual desire and sexual response, but of course, lots of other, lots of other interesting questions along the way too. Amazing. Just for the listeners in case they, because I don't want anybody to assume, the stressed out rats, did they want sex? Okay, so super interesting. The male stressed out rats did not. The female stressed out rats did, but this is where looking at animal models does not allow for a comparable model of human female sexuality (laughs) because uh, for any of your listeners who might identify as female, you'll know that stress is very anti-sexual. But it had to do with the types of serotonin receptors that were activated in response to the stress. And it turned out it had the opposite effect in female rats that it did in male rats. So interestingly, the male rat actually provided a bit of a better model of understanding female sexuality on a purely physiological level. Yeah. I think so many people don't understand or understand, appreciate the role of their lifestyle and how they go, 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 and how that translates to their receptivity for sex. And that they just think they're broken because they don't have desire. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, low desire in women is really high. It's actually the highest sexual, most prevalent sexual problem in men as well, even though erectile functioning, erectile dysfunction gets a lot more attention. So low desire is the most common. And there's actually been a lot of really good science that has tried to understand why is it so high? What are the factors that are contributing to feelings of lack of interest in women? What can we do to cultivate desire, et cetera? And it turns out that stress is definitely on the top five list. So, and by stress, I mean sort of the chronic daily grind, the never ending to-do list, the multitasking and the preoccupation with all the things that one has to do, the multiple roles that we hold, maybe the sense of perfectionism that I need to do things to a certain standard. And if I don't, that there's something wrong with me. Why can't I keep up with everyone else on Instagram who seems to be able to hold it all together? And what's really interesting is the impact of these daily stressors on the brain is more significant than, say, a single traumatic event. So, you know, when we think about a a trauma or within the context of post-traumatic stress disorder, we can appreciate that, yeah, of course, that that event is going to have a dramatic impact on your well-being and maybe even on your sexuality. But these daily chronic stressors can do more damage to our brains in a way that impacts desire more so than a single traumatic event. So we need to be paying attention and having conversations around these context-related factors that are directly affecting our interest in sex. So many people, I think, don't even realize that they're stressed. Right? Like it's just this chronic cortisol. I call it like the cortisol-driven sympathetic nervous system. Like you're just go, go, go all the time. And then sex also just becomes like a to-do list of like, got to get that done too. And how do you get people to realize like, number one, your lifestyle does impact your sex life. But number two, what if somebody's like, I can't slow down. Like I need the money. My kids are in a bunch of it. Like how do you give them the tools, number one, to see it, number two, to do something about it? Yeah. I mean, the first question is is relatively easy. And you can ask a person, tell me about the last time that you had great desire and you felt pleasure. And they'll often say, I was on vacation. The kids were away for the weekend. I got through everything. Like there's some sort of, you know, and, and what's always interesting 
is the answer is right there. And I'll often say to people, there's nothing magical about that hotel room. Like there's, it's not kind of sprinkled with aphrodisiacs in, in the wallpaper. It's because you're there. You're fully showing up. You're fully present. The to-do list is irrelevant at that point because, you know, you're not doing laundry and you're not driving kids to soccer practice and that sort of thing. So people do have real life experiences of pleasurable sexual encounters, even among people who say, I've had low desire for my whole life. They might, there might be these, they might be sporadic and infrequent. So that's a way, again, to really emphasize the impact of being in a different environment, but also what happens when we step outside of our, of our to-do list. And then your second question around how do we then inspire people to maybe make life changes in a way that can help their sexual health and sexual desire, that can be a bit more challenging because you're asking them to do yet another thing. So in my world, that one additional thing to do is, is I might say, have you thought about taking up a mindfulness practice as a, as a tool of helping you to be more present? And sometimes it's met with, oh my God, it's another thing I have to do. Like this is opposite of what I want and is also a reason why there's such an appeal to maybe taking a medication that supposedly can restore one's sexual desire. Maybe we'll put a pin in that one and come back to it later. So it can be challenging. And then I I often might gently refer to the, the scientific evidence. Being a researcher, I'll say, you know, there's fairly good evidence that suggests stress, multitasking, attention, well-being, feelings about yourself, self-acceptance, all these sorts of things directly improve desire. It's not just kind of a theoretical idea. These are topics that researchers have been studying for some time and we've actually got really good evidence that when we make even subtle tweaks to these things that we see improvements in in sexual response. Yeah, I love it. I have a friend who does like wellness coaching. Like it's not, it's not about sex at all. And she uh, texted me and she's like, all of my people are saying their sex lives are better. <laughs> After this, then she's like not focused on sex at all. But she does After her mindfulness coaching. stuff. Yeah, just her mindfulness and like taking time and, you know, getting her, their nervous system regulated and all that stuff. And she's like, they're all coming back and telling me they're having amazing sex. <laughs> so I'm like, there you yeah, go. Look, at, look at what you're doing. <laughs> it's so good. So I got into mindfulness in residency. I was in like third year resident on call every two days for an entire year straight. Workaholic, super stressed. And my plan was to just figure out how to control people so my date would be better. Like literally, that was my plan. And so I'd like, went on the internet, tried to figure it out, literally came across Buddhism, John Kabat-Zinn and mindfulness and realized I can't control anybody at all. So I found like the opposite of my question. And so I, I've understood mindfulness for many years now. When did it kind of click like, oh, people don't, it's not like intuitive to people that mindfulness is actually good A for yourself and sex and like that you should do a book on it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my, my own personal story is I, I discovered it somewhat serendipitously as well. So I did my residency and then a postdoc at the University of Washington, just south of you. And I learned about mindfulness as a treatment for a different psychological issue. So people who engage in self-harm behavior as a way of managing their emotions. So in the context of borderline personality, I learned that the most evidence-based treatment for borderline personality disorder, something called dialectical behavior therapy, includes mindfulness. And it was this idea 
that when you're feeling super emotional, like you can't control your emotions and you just want to scream and you, you know, you might even have suicidal thoughts, that one of the most effective things you can do in the moment is be really present and be really present in your body and notice your body sensations. And I sort of visualized, you know, getting on my surfboard and kind of riding out the wave and just holding on. And you can only do that when you're staying really present. And so it turned out, well, it turns out that there's a ton of scientific evidence for mindfulness, not only in helping people manage really intense escalating emotions, but there's also a lot of evidence for mindfulness in helping people manage chronic distressing pain or anxiety or inattention. And so at the time I was doing research with gynecologic cancer survivors whom we know have a high rate of sexual problems after their cancer treatments, whether it's surgery or radiation or chemotherapy. And some of what they shared with me around the extremes of their emotions and feeling disconnected and maybe even sometimes feeling extreme guilt or sense of shame and loss and sorrow and all these sorts of things. And because in parallel, I was learning about mindfulness for this other condition, I just, I said, hey, would you be willing to try this? I'm learning about it. So I started practicing mindfulness, going to classes, you know, adopting my own practice, reading everything I could. And at the same time, I engaged a group of cancer survivors and said, would you be willing to learn this alongside me? So I'll sort of be sharing with you what I'm learning. And they did. And what they shared with me is that it allowed them to realize that what they thought was completely gone and stripped from them, which among other things, one of was their kind of sexual response is that they realized that it was still there. Yes, it was muted. Yes, it felt different than it did before, but it was still there. And so mindfulness allowed them to tune into that. And then with practice, it actually allowed them to amplify it even more. So that was how I started, how I started in this field of linking mindfulness to sex. And then over the years, of course, we've, we and many others around the world have evaluated different iterations of mindfulness programs. So three session, four session, eight session, one-on-one group formats with couples online, in person. And the story is fairly consistent that mindfulness is a pretty powerful tool for restoring sexual response. Awesome. And not just like before sex and the desire, which I think women get desire. Like we'll be like, oh, that's that, that was good looking or, oh, that was kind of hot. Or, oh, like we think about it and we slam it down so fast, right? That was like, appreciate the desire that bubbles up every once in a while and like cultivate it, especially when we're socialized not to want, right? Or not to desire too much because we call those women bad names. But also during sex, when our minds wander, using mindfulness in the actual sexual moment to be like, get back into the body, get back into the present moment, because our brains, our attention spans are so short, right? Like our brain keeps going other places. Can you talk about like mindfulness during the act? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's amazing. There's, you know, we've certainly asked it over the years of our research participants, like, what do you think about during sex? And it's amazing the non-sexual things that people think about. You wonder, are you even thinking about sex at all? And so you know, I'll often say, if your body's going to be having sex, why not invite your mind to show up as well? 
And we have also learned a lot, thanks to really, uh, really good, sophisticated scientific studies that have shown us the importance of that brain-body connection in not just eliciting the initial sexual response, but in fueling it during sexual activity. So if you imagine that maybe at the start of an encounter, the mind is present and the body starts to show signs of arousal and the brain is sending messages down to the body to keep going. And then you start having a thought, did I turn the oven off? That kind of takes you down the rabbit hole where you have these vivid images of you know the house on fire. And so essentially the brain has stopped communicating to the body to continue responding sexually. And this scenario turns out to be, it's actually really, really common, even among people who don't have any sexual difficulties. But if you're someone who does have a sexual difficulty, and that might contribute to, you know, shutting down sexual arousal, maybe creating pain, maybe creating discomfort, and then, of course, fueling the belief that, see, I'm sexually dysfunctional. There's something wrong with me. I have no capacity for sexual arousal. So the use of mindfulness during sexual activity, I mean, that's how we're designed to have sex, right? That's why sex is a recreational act and not just a procreational act. It's recreational because it's pleasurable and we enjoy it. And maybe it's an escape from the other things that we're doing. It's a chance to show up and feel these wonderful feelings. And yet, because our brains are increasingly multitasking and being pulled away, we're not really enjoying its recreational value. Mm -hmm. Totally. Your research has explored the intersections between sexual health and mental health. Can you discuss depression, anxiety, the amount of women taking antidepressants and men taking antidepressants and the rate of anxiety and depression in our culture and how that affects sexuality? Yeah. So there's an annual survey called the Stress in America survey. And, you know, essentially it asks Americans, do you feel stressed out? And the numbers, if you look over time, they just, you know, it's like a straight line going up. So people are feeling more stressed in general. In concert with that, actual rates of anxiety disorders, so panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, other anxiety disorders, but also depression are also increasing as well. There's also a gender difference. So women are more likely to be diagnosed with depression and anxiety than men are. Now, we could, of course, have a conversation around, are we just getting better at detecting these? And that's why the prevalence of of diagnosis has gone up. And researchers have tried to look at that and they've concluded that, yes, that might be going on, but we're also seeing higher rates of these things in, in general. So they absolutely intersect with sexual response. So if we look at, let's take depression as an example, and there's a number of criteria that one needs to endorse in order to meet criteria for a major depressive episode. One of the core criteria is apathy. And apathy is lack of interest in things that you're normally interested in. So low sexual desire or loss of desire is one of those examples. And oftentimes in the clinical setting, I'll hear, you know, I used to enjoy sex. I used to have desire for sex. I used to initiate it. And now if I go a month with never thinking about it, like that's pretty typical of me. And so it becomes really important to look at, is anxiety playing a role in that? Is depression playing a role in that? Because if it is, it's really important that that be addressed. Now, you mentioned antidepressants, and here's where there's a bit of a double-edged sword, because no doubt antidepressants have a role to play for a lot of people in helping them manage mood symptoms and anxiety. 
So while one has the benefit to their mood and anxiety symptoms from antidepressants, we also know that many of them have sexual side effects, the most common of which being interfering with ability to reach orgasm. So it's a bit of a trade-off, right? So on the one hand, there's this medication that potentially could help my mood and anxiety, but I might be faced with the prospect of sexual dysfunction on the other hand. And a lot of people will stop their medications, whether it's an antidepressant or other medications, because of sexual side effects. And very few of them will actually admit to their primary care doc that that's the reason why they're stopping. They might just say, it didn't work for me. Yeah. Does mindfulness work in the setting of having depression and anxiety? Does that help with sexuality too? Yes. Thanks for asking that question. I mean, there's been, if I could show a visual, I would show this visual. It shows the number of research studies that have evaluated mindfulness for depression and anxiety in general. And it's just the huge curve upwards, including more recent studies in the last two years that have found mindfulness to be more effective than some of the most commonly used antidepressants. I don't want to paint a bad picture of antidepressants at all because for some people they can be life-changing and life-saving, but we also have other strategies, mindfulness being one of them, that can be really helpful. So because we have evidence that mindfulness can improve mood and we have evidence that mindfulness can improve sexuality, that would be my go-to choice for someone who has that combination of sexual problems plus an anxiety or depression picture. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that goes nicely into our topic of like the meds for low desire, right? Because it's like, just like when you have depression, you give somebody a pill, but you don't teach them about brain techniques and exercise and all the good things that help depression and anxiety. My worry was once the meds for low desire come out, you're just going to give a woman, because they're FDA approved for women, you're just going to give a woman a pill and then not teach her all of the other things and then the pill's not going to work. And she's going to double down on feeling really broken, which is like the entire thesis of my book is like their medications can help, but we've got to teach people about all this other stuff. What are your thoughts on the low desire meds and kind of where do you think they play? Yeah. So there was a long race to get these two medications approved. And that race started again, when Viagra for men was approved, because suddenly there was this interest in could Viagra be the blockbuster for females as it was for males. And there were many studies. In fact, I also was involved in some of the early Viagra for women trials. And I think all but a, a small handful showed that it really worked no better than placebo. So people started to look at other types of molecules that might improve desire. The first one to cross the finish line did so in 2018. And this is a medication actually that was originally tried as an antidepressant. And in the studies that uh, evaluated phlebanserin as an antidepressant, it actually didn't improve their mood, but a handful of the research participants noticed an improvement in their desire. So that took a detour and there was a, a multi-million dollar, multi-year effort towards investigating whether phlebanserin could improve sexual desire in women. So this is one of the medications that is approved. Now, it is available, but it, there's certain caveats that one needs to keep in mind if one, one chooses to use that. First of all, it has to be used daily. And in the clinical trials, what they found is that women had to be using it for at least eight weeks before they saw any significant benefit. It's also contraindicated with alcohol. And so that's a major 
major downer for people who might enjoy a glass of wine, for whom maybe enjoying a drink is kind of part of their sexual lead up or or what have you. And then the other thing is when you actually look at the clinical trials, yes, it has a significant effect above placebo, but it's not like a whopping effect. So what they found was that over the course of a month for a person who was already having sex, one of those would be more satisfying for the women in the phlebanserin group compared to the placebo group. So the uptake, when we actually look at the data across North America, has not been huge at all. In Canada, and in particularly in Western Canada, where I'm from, I don't know of a single physician that has been prescribing phlebanserin in the last two years. So it is available and it probably helps a small subset of women with low desire. But as you mentioned earlier, without looking at all these other factors like mood and stress and you know sleep deprivation and negative body image, it makes sense why a medication that's designed to kind of tweak the serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine levels in your brain, but it's not going to restore your sleep and not make you like your partner more is not going to have a whole lot of benefit. Interesting, you know, in America, and I'm not sure Canada is much better, but you literally have like 10 minutes with your doctor. And you always hear, like, I hear as a physician, I was like, patients will say, like, I went to my doctor. They just told me to be more mindful. They kind of like blow it off. Like the doctor's not trying to give them some really important piece of information. How would you give, I think, tips to like the providers to be like really validating mindfulness as a legit thing to tell people about in regards to their sexual health? Yeah, the 10-minute office visit is standard in Canada as well. And so it's challenging when you want to ask a patient those detailed questions like we're talking about now. It's almost impossible to do in 10 minutes. So first of all, maybe treating this as an issue that you cover over a series of visits, first of all, but also having maybe your 10 key facts at your fingertips. So facts such as stress can impact sexual desire? Do we have a way of making sure that we're that you're managing your stress? Do you have access to resources, even if they're online tools or apps, lots of great apps delivering stress management tools. Having maybe common myths at your fingertips as well. So the myth that sexual desire comes spontaneously and I should feel desire or else there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with my relationship. Spontaneous sex is the standard. And so if you have to plan sex, there's something wrong with you. Nope, myth. So again, having these key sound bites at your fingertips, maybe it's even on a handout that you can have. I often say to physicians I work with and busy family docs, like have a book on your shelf that patients can see that you're a provider who values sexual health and this is a safe place where they can ask their questions. Know the local resources where you can refer, you know, know your your pelvic floor physiotherapist, know your sex therapist that you can refer to and know the reputable websites and apps and online sources that people can go to to get good information. I love it. You know, you brought up a good thing about like what you believe and the role of our beliefs on our sex life, right? I just read this paper and it was like looking at people's belief on if scheduling sex is good or not. And if you believed it was not okay, then you were less likely to have a good sex life when you schedule it. But if you believed scheduling sex was good for your sex life, you enjoyed the sex you had when you scheduled it more. Can you talk about like the role of beliefs, the role of just believing you have low desire, all of that stuff? Yeah, beliefs and beliefs are, are key, right? They impact how we feel, 
They impact what we do. And for a lot of people, they don't necessarily pay a lot of attention to beliefs, including those maladaptive or problematic beliefs until, until you ask them. So one of the things that mindfulness allows us to do is just to pay more attention to our beliefs in general. So you might start to notice, oh, I'm actually believing that there's something wrong with me when I'm amongst my friends who are talking about their great sex lives. It actually makes me feel really dysfunctional. And there's a whole theory called cognitive behavioral theory, which illustrates the relationship between your beliefs, your emotions, and your behaviors. And guess what? Those beliefs don't stay in isolation. They directly affect how we feel. They impact our physiology. We might tighten up a little bit more, tense a little bit more. We might start to hyperventilate a bit more in our breathing. And then you start to see this cascading effect. So beliefs are so important to address. There's different ways of addressing them. So the mindfulness way of addressing beliefs is we just acknowledge that these are things that the brain produces and we're not going to pay a whole lot of attention to them versus say cognitive behavioral therapy which takes a much more structured approach and says, oh, that belief is irrational. Let's challenge it with good evidence. Let's change the belief and let's adopt a new belief that can allow us to feel better and engage in healthier behaviors. I love it. Let's switch for a second about anorgasmia. So the inability to have an orgasm. I had a young woman, she was in her 20s, heterosexual female, came in primary anorgasmia, so never had an orgasm. How would you start with that? Is mindfulness play a role, self-exploration? Because the data shows that most bodies can orgasm, right? So a lot of this, this primary anorgasmia really is our society tells us not to be sexual. It's bad to touch ourselves. Maybe we're just stressed and kind of ramped up a lot so we can't kind of drop in. How would you say either mindfulness or just your work plays in with the people who struggle with having orgasms? Yeah, so primary or lifelong anorgasmia, first of all, we'd want to make sure that we ask all the right questions. So on the more kind of psychological and social front, I'd want to find out what environment did that person grow up in? Were there particularly negative views? Were there maybe religious views around the dangers of self-touch and masturbation is a sin and touching one's body is a really bad thing to do? And therefore the person over time maybe has developed guilt and shame, maybe even aversion to touching their body, which means that that's going to impact how they touch themselves or that they don't touch themselves at all and don't have an appreciation for what parts of their body are most sexually responsive. So there's a whole series of questions that we'd want to find out about that person's upbringing and current beliefs about pleasure and self-touch and, and even just their awareness of their own body, et cetera. Of course, on the medical side, we want to find out where are there, could there be medical or physical or physiological explanations for why that person has never reached an orgasm? Did they have a, a physical trauma to the pelvis? Um, are there other medical conditions that we know can impact some of the nerves that that might give rise to pleasure, et cetera. So that's where a referral to a qualified physician who maybe could do an exam, but also ask the right questions would be really, really important. On the whole, the research has indicated that for most women with primary or lifelong anorgasmia, that the reasons tend to be more psychological than anything. 
There's a great book that was actually written by my my postdoc supervisor, Julia Hyman, that's called Becoming Orgasmic. And it was published in the mid seventies. And it's, it's, I still use it still on my shelf to this day. And the first half of the book guides the reader to thinking about their own history and their current beliefs and just a lot of permission giving around knowing their body and exploring it. And then the second half of the book guides them through self-directed masturbation as a way of kind of approaching pleasure. Lori Mintz also more recently has an updated version of that book called Becoming Cliterate, which also is awesome and, and focuses a bit more on, you know, really the clitoris for people who have uh, female structures and born female. And that's really important because I think there is still a lingering societal belief that penis and vagina intercourse should give rise to orgasm. And yet we know that the majority of females who engage in intercourse don't, don't experience orgasm through, through penile insertive uh, intercourse. Rather, it's stimulation of the clitoris and the vulva and other sources that gives rise. So a bit of a long answer, but the good news is that lifelong or primary anorgasmia is actually very treatable. And it's often treatable through a combination of good education, challenging myths, and mindfulness, of course. Love it. Thank you. I talk to you know a lot of people on Instagram and they kind of tell me their stories. And this like, I think I'm asexual. I don't desire sex at all. And really dissecting down true like asexuality, which I believe the data says like 1% of humans maybe versus somebody who just never had sex worth desiring in the first place or never had good sex or maybe has responsive desire, right? But those people kind of are labeling themselves as asexual now. Is that accurate? Or how would you kind of dissect those different scenarios? Yeah, that's that's actually been a thread of my research over many, many years is how do we decipher asexuality, which is actually an orientation, the person who lacks not just desire, but lacks sexual attraction completely versus the person who has low desire. And so there's a number of considerations there and it can be tricky at times for sure. And that's why asking really good questions, empowering the person maybe to go on to AVEN, which is asexuality.org and reading about other people who have been exploring their own sexuality and, and seeing if those stories resonate with them. One of the features that distinguishes those two groups is that the person with say a low desire issue wants to get better. They actually want to feel desire. They want to want, and they're motivated to maybe try a treatment or or try a strategy to restore their desire or give them desire to begin with. Whereas the person with asexuality, again, as a sexual orientation, they're not broken. So there's no need to fix anything. This is their orientation. They might experience distress that is directed to them from a partner or from society. And actually in my clinical practice, I see a lot of couples where one person identifies as asexual and the other person doesn't. And they're trying to figure out how do we make sex work when one person is asexual? And it can be kind of tricky in that context. So that's just one of the ways is looking at, is there distress and a desire to treat this versus, no, this is just who I am. So let's dig into, if you don't mind, let's dig into that scenario because I think I see it a lot in the, you know, long-term relationship. Maybe there's some health problems. One partner wants more sex than the other partner does. 
you get into this like obligatory, there's just this amazing paper about like obligatory sex and that women have obligatory sex way more than men do. How do you navigate that couple? Like, how do you help them find a good place where like everybody's kind of happy with what's going on? Yeah, it's probably the most common scenario, right? The discrepant desire. One person has more desire than the other person. So first of all, you know, we move away from numbers. So we get away from this idea that you need to be having sex a certain number of times per week, per month, per year in order to be normal and be healthy. And so for the high desire person, that can be a tough one to swallow because, you know, they want more sex. That's the that's why they're showing up in your office. But when we take a step back and we look at among the various reasons why the low desire person is not desiring sex, one of them might be that the sex is not enjoyable for them. Maybe it hurts. Maybe they're not using an adequate lubricant. Maybe this is a perimenopausal person where there's dryness and they need a moisturizer. Maybe they're so exhausted and the time that they have sex is after the 11 p.m. news and they're falling asleep. Maybe they resent their partner. Maybe there are smells that are actually turning them off. Maybe they're feeling coerced to have sex because if they don't, partner will be angry, will be difficult to live with, et cetera. There can be many, many, many reasons. So once we start to explore with the lower desire person, what are the reasons? Like what are the things actually standing in the way? And if sex could feel really good, and if it could happen at a time when you're most awake, and if it could happen where you are an active agent in it, directing what's happening, including the pace of things and including what you do during it, and where you feel like you have your voice, could that be a type of sex that maybe you have some desire for? And the person says, yeah, sign me up for that kind of sex. And so this is one of the things we do in sex therapy is we, first of all, look at, okay, what are the barriers that are getting in the way? And then can we maybe shift the system a little bit to dismantle some of those, some of those barriers? Now, it can be really easy in that kind of discrepant desire situation to just point the finger at the low desire person which can backfire sometimes, right? It might just reinforce their feelings of being broken and and being responsible for the problems in their sex lives. And as such, it becomes really important that you take a couple perspective. So what role does the partner play? Is the partner asking the low desire person how they want to be stimulated? Is the partner taking a role in scheduling sex? And by sex, I mean, not just penetrative or insertive activities, but the things that maybe feel better for that person, right? So clitoral touch, body touching, you know, licking, hand-holding, like all those other ways of expressing sexual intimacy besides intercourse. So that is definitely a bulk of what we do as sex therapists as we try and kind of understand the system. I love it. There needs to be way more sex therapists, by the way. Just my opinion. <laughs> Bellingham, Bellingham, we had zero sex therapists when I moved here. We have about five now. They're all horrifically booked out with like not even taking waiting lists. So booked out. Like this is a big, please people, become sex therapists. We need more. Yes. <laughs> please people. <laughs> please people. One of my limitations, I think doctor's limitations, again, in that 10 minute visit is the myth that penis and vagina sex is sex. And like, people's resistance to thinking that there is something else or almost like feeling like they failed if they have to do something else. How do you start opening the curtains to like 
you guys are doing one type of sex and when it breaks, everything falls apart because you have no other context. Gosh, that is such a prevalent fixed myth that we have that penis in vagina sex is the only way to have sex. First of all, it excludes people that don't have a penis and a vagina. (laughs) So it excludes all those people who might be having sex with different bodies and maybe who don't identify as as a cisgender couple, et cetera. So it excludes a lot of people. It also excludes the people that say for maybe medical reasons or other reasons can't engage in penis and vagina sex. So, you know, I do a lot of work with prostate cancer survivors and many of them have permanent erectile dysfunction. Well, guess what? They can learn to have really pleasurable sexual encounters that don't require putting a penis in something or an erect penis in something. So, It's one that we can address that myth that, you know, penile vaginal sex is the only way to have sex. We can address it in lots of different ways. You can assign people exercises where they just touch each other without any kind of sexual activity. And then you have them report back on what that felt like. And they'll come back to you a week later and they'll say, oh my gosh, that felt so good. I was like on the verge of arousal and orgasm just from having my partner touch my body with their hands. So you can use evidence like that to really point people to the whole tapas table of different kinds of ways of being sexual. And intercourse is one of the tapas items, but it's certainly not the only one. And how much more joyful sex can be when they have variety and they have novelty and they have other options to choose from when penis and vagina sex is maybe not an option for them. I love it. You did a paper on mindfulness-based group therapy to help couples' sexual intimacy after prostate cancer. I see this a lot as a urologist. Tell me about that. Like, where did that come from? And then is there a great book for either prostate cancer survivors or people with severe erectile dysfunction in how to explore sexuality without an erect penis? Because I've been looking for a resource for these people. Yeah. I mean, I always, when there's anything um, about cancer and sex, I direct everyone to Ann Katz, K-A-T-Z. Ann Katz has multiple books on cancer and sex for men and women, all cancer types, et cetera, et cetera. So that would be the go-to. Yeah. So the, the work that we had done with prostate cancer survivors, this arose out of discussions I was having with the urologists that I work with that were, were getting really frustrated with survivors that they had been working with around, you know, that the medications weren't working with them after their cancer treatments to restore their erections, that many of them were resorting to, you know, much more extreme and drastic treatments like penile implants, et cetera. Many of them had a lot of difficulty or squeamishness around injections for restoring their erections. And so they had been from the sidelines observing our work on mindfulness with female cancer survivors of all different types. And so it was it was really a hallway conversation where they said, would you be willing to try this in our patients? And I said, absolutely. But I will promise you right now, I will not restore their erections. <laughs> so I will introduce those patients to the tapas table of different ways of being sexual. I will help them manage their distress around their lost erections. I will help them be really present during sex and connecting with their partners but I am not restoring those erections. So we went into the study knowing that, that that was not the goal of restoring erections, but all these other outcomes. We decided to engage the survivor's partners as well, which in the end turned out to be beautiful and magical and and critical as well. So partners really helped 
muster up and cheer for the survivors' engagement with the material. Because again, they were very locked in this narrow, maybe medicalized view, if you will, that, you know, I just need to get my erection back and then I'll be fine. So it was a great project. We published a couple of studies on it. And now our prostate cancer supportive care team at Vancouver Hospital, now they deliver mindfulness to the prostate cancer survivors. Wow. That's amazing. (laughs) As a urologist, my mind is just being blown right now. I'm like, really? I think urology, you know, as like the leaders of the Viagra movement, if I can, if I can self-coin it that, we've done a pretty crappy job of involving a partner. And a lot of these people want to have sex with other people. And then we're we're changing their penises, we're giving them super penises, we're giving them function that they haven't had in years. And yeah. we don't address the goal. And it's it's interesting when I talk to urologists, because some of them are like, of course we should be, because their goal is sex, not just an erect penis. The other view is we treat the person in the room. It's none of our business. Maybe it's there's a wife, but there's girlfriends. We don't want to get involved. Like it's a very much like just treat the individual and the erect penis being the problem. But we we miss. of the population if we're missing the person they want to be having sex with and we're just changing the penis. Yeah. Thoughts on that or tips for urologists or anything? Yeah. There's a urologist, a fabulous uh, new urologist in Ontario, Canada that reached out to me recently and said, you know, I really want to do a study on men's beliefs about the importance of their erection to their partners. Because when I'm in the room with the with the guy, he believes that his erection is important to her. But then by chance, when I'm able to interview the partner, partner says it's irrelevant. So we're actually doing a study right now. So Luke uh, Witherspoon in Ontario is leading this study together with his resident. And so we're interviewing all the partners of men with erectile dysfunction to find out how important his erection is to the partner. So yeah, I think what you've highlighted is is so important. And again, it, it kind of harkens back to our earlier discussion around beliefs and belief systems and how they can be really fixed and sometimes really problematic and lead not just patients to do things, but us as providers to get fixated on things that we think are going to help a person when they really don't. When I see a guy with erectile dysfunction, now knowing what I know now, I'll look at him and I'll be like, does your partner want an erect penis in her vagina? What does she want that? (laughs) Nine times out of 10, they have no idea. Right? They're literally like, I don't know. And so I'm like, so you came to my office to get an erect penis and you don't know if your partner wants an erect penis in her vagina? Game changer. That's a game changer question. Right? Like the basics around communication, right? Which is a whole nother podcast. But like people do not talk to each other about sex. And then they come to the doctor and the doctor's like, get the penis hard. That's what you want. And you're like, right. Does, does she even want it? Like, yeah. can we start, I love that. I there. love that you're asking that question. I hope, uh, I hope you have a lot of health providers listening to your podcast who, who's, who adopt, who adopt that question. It's a great one. They do. They're so great. Well, thank you. This hour flew by. I'm so excited to meet your acquaintance and have you as a friend and next door neighbor. Where can people find you real quick if they want to find, follow more? You have a new, your workbook's coming out or you just got the workbook Yeah, it, it just part. came out. So yeah, so there's Better Sex Through Mindfulness and then there's the Better Sex Through Mindfulness workbook. My website's lauriebrado.com. You can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Lori Brado. And then if anyone's interested in our research, it's brado.lab.com. Love it. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, it was a pleasure. 
Hey friends, if you love what I'm doing on this podcast and love who I'm interviewing, I want to encourage you to join the private membership where you get a front seat pass with all of my interviews and you can even ask them questions. In addition, there's going to be group coaching with me and my upcoming guest coach to take this work, to go deeper, to live your best sex and love life. Join today at www.kellycaspersonmd.com membership. I'll see you on the inside.